1: We all have our ideas as to what a marriage is like, but what's God's idea about a marriage? Let's take a look at that over the next couple of weeks as we begin a series called What is a Godly Marriage? Next on Abounding Grace. Ten different people what they think marriage should look like, you'll get ten different answers. That's why it's always comforting to go to God's Word for the definitive answer, the one true answer that we all can rely on. And that's exactly what we'll do when it comes to marriage. Hi there. Welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Today we begin our series called What is a Godly Marriage? We'll start things off here in Genesis chapter 1 and work our way to 1 Corinthians 11 today and tomorrow. Please join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: So today we are beginning a five-week look at your marriage, but your marriage in the light of the Word of God. In an effort to help your marriage be everything I know you long it to be, and more importantly, to be what God wants it to be. We will consider such issues as how God wants your marriage to be, how your marriage can be normal, and that is according to the word of God, how to love your wife, how to understand your spouse, and how children fit into your marriage. And to supplement these messages, I want to recommend to you two wonderful, wonderful books. I recommend to you, ladies, a book called The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. Now, you might be very interested in buying this book because Joe Loomis is going to start a study series on this book beginning at the end of June, in which you ladies will have a breakfast at my home, as the men have been having at the very beginning of each month. And so, if you would, I highly recommend that book to you, ladies. Then I recommend to you men the book called The Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott, which was actually meant to be a book to complement this one here for men. I have loaned my copy to someone, and of course, I haven't gotten it back. So anyway, it is an excellent book. I'm not doing this series, brothers and sisters, to make you think that I have a perfect marriage. Far, far from it. I fall far short of who I am called to be in my marriage. But such a series as this demands honesty on your part And on my part, honesty on your part means you will sincerely evaluate your marriage and make yourself open and vulnerable to the Word of God, to be sifted by it and tried by it, and to focus on bringing any changes in your own attitude, your behavior, relationships, and response to your spouse that the Word of God demands of you. Honesty on my part means that not only must I do the same thing that the word calls all of us to do, but it also means that I must not hold back in setting forth what the word of God demands of us, either because of the fear of men's faces or because what the word of God demands in marriage runs so cross grain to what our American culture believes The basic reasons for these sermons on marriage at this point is because the pressure Christian marriages are experiencing from both outside and from inside the marriage. By from the outside, I mean from the anti-Christian American culture that surrounds us, that is constantly pressuring us to compromise with the world's standards and expectations By the inside, I mean the indwelling sin that fills us as husbands and wives, as Christians, that is pressuring us to give in to laziness and self-absorption and self-love and moral laxity. In other words, your Christian marriage is surrounded and it is under attack. But, beloved, as you are faithful to Christ, then believe God's promise to you in 1 John 4, 4, that says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, some Christians have a far less than biblical understanding of marriage, having had their minds corrupted by unbiblical practices in their family history, by television programs, sitcoms, by magazines, by today's psychology and sociology, from educated uh, education from state-supported schools and humanistic colleges and universities. Other Christians who do have a generally biblical understanding of marriage have actually given up on perseverance in doing well in their marriage. They have given up persevering on what God wants them to be, possibly because of hurt feelings. Maybe it's pride or laziness, a willingness to be controlled by our emotions, divided attention, or a failure at keeping priorities straight. And then there are those Christians, I hope, like all of you, who truly love your spouse and really do want to have a marriage that pleases God and are, are willing to humble yourselves, practice self-denial, and be and do whatever the Word of God commands. Because above all else, you love Christ. They just need some specific and practical counsel on how to deal with those marital challenges that we all face in this world. I earnestly pray that in whatever these conditions you find yourself, that these sermons will be beneficial and edifying to you and that they will help you along the way in your marital status. If you have personal or private questions about your marriage that you need help with, please do not hesitate to come to me and ask me for help or give me a call on the phone. It is my hope that you will take an inventory of your marriage from over the years, some long, some short, in light of the revealed truths that we will discuss Thank God for the good things about your marriage that God has enabled you to experience and to repent of those sins in your marriage that have kept your marriage from being what it could be. So now to our first consideration today. What does God want? Not what do you want. Not what does Gary want. But was does God want your marriage to be? You know, most Americans have never asked themselves that question, mainly because they believe there's no way of knowing the way to answer that question, since they have shut God out of their universe. But Christians know differently. We can and must ask the question, because we know that God has revealed himself and his will for our lives in the Bible. There in the Bible, God tells us what kind of people he wants us to be and what kind of marriages he wants us to have. And the Christian knows that the most important question he can ever ask is, what does God require of me? What would God have me to do? How can I glorify God in my marriage? In the very beginning of the human race, God gave human beings the precious gift of marriage, explaining to them its purposes and its nature. So today, let's see what God said about marriage when he gave it to the human race some 6,000 years ago. First of all, concerning the origin of marriage. The Bible makes clear in the beginning and throughout that marriage originated not in some primitive culture where some caveman wanted to make sure all the women in his tribe were kept for his own enjoyment, like the world would like you to believe. But marriage originated with our loving Heavenly Father, And therefore, it has a sweetness and a sanctity to it that must be respected by everyone. You know, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It is an honorable, privileged, and holy thing to be called by God to be married. Continually encourage your husband or your wife by reminding him or her that it is an honor, it is a privilege to be married to him or her, and no other human relationship in life compares to it. In fact, being married to your wife is only second to your relationship with the living God. The first chapter of Genesis gives marriage a particular shape and a particular structure. There is an intimate unity to it that the Bible calls our one fleshness. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And the man said, speaking here of Eve, who had just been created, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now here you see something of the shape of marriage concerning the relationship of the man and his wife. They are bone of each other's bones and flesh of each other's flesh. Now let me ask you, what is your skeleton? A skeleton, of course, gives the body form. It gives it definition. To say you and your wife are bone of each other's bones is to say that you both share the same skeleton, so to speak. That the structure of her being and her life is the structure of your own life. And you are not only bone of each other's bones, sharing the same skeleton, but you are flesh of each other's flesh. You share the same muscles, and you share the same skin. That is, the very life of her is your life, and vice versa. What defines her life defines your life. You realize yourself in terms of her and her in him. And that's why separation for a time to solve your problems or to work things out or to get a little relief and comfort never works. It's like my arm having a problem and ripping itself off from the body saying, You know, I'll just think I'll separate myself from the rest of the skeleton until this problem in my elbow ends. And then I'll come back and I'll... No, it doesn't work that way. You are bone of each other's bone. You are flesh of each other's flesh. You share the same skeleton, the same skin, the same muscle. The same life. That is the way you've got to think, beloved. That's the way you've got to live. That's the way you've got to relate to your spouse in this world. You are no longer single in any sense. The Bible says you are one flesh. And one flesh is not simply a sexual statement As one author said in a book that I read many years ago, one fleshness is a never-ending quest, a never-ending quest for deeper and more complete intimacy and personal oneness. It is not something that happens overnight. Some of you haven't been married too long. And you've been enjoying the sweetness of marital love. And you feel closer to that person, more one with that person than prior to the time you were married. And you think your relationship is so intimate and so deep. My dear friend, you are just skimming along the top. There is still much more to come. It is not something that automatically happens and that it is it. It is something that must be never-ending, a never-ending quest in your life to be more intimate, more one with a deeper and richer and greater sense of unity with your wife or your husband than you have right now. That is what it means to be one flesh, to share the same structure, to find meaning in the same life, and to be one flesh with a never-ending quest for deeper and more complete personal oneness and intimacy with one another. When an marriage, marriage takes place, a new primary relationship is formed. It says in Genesis two twenty four, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and become one flesh. We often talk about this leaving and this cleaving that creates a, mem- a marriage. And those are strong verbs, leaving and cleaving. The word leave means to abandon. Now it doesn't mean you abandon your mom and dad and you never go back to see them again. Of course, that would very much hurt their feelings. But it means their authority ends. And the word cleave means to pursue hard after. A firmly joined state like superglue. To cleave is like superglue. It's something you pursue and you press after with all your might and with all your energy. This is a new authority structure that is created with a transfer of allegiance that takes place. Before that marriage, the man was getting started in his own life. The woman was under her father's authority. And while they were seeing each other and courting and while they were engaged, her primary allegiance was to her father. In fact, if her husband-to-be was to ask her to do something, And her father was to ask her to do something, and there was a conflict. She was to obey her father, because that was her primary authority. Now a marriage has taken place, and now there is a transference of allegiance, and her primary authority now is her husband. She pledges allegiance to him. She loves her father. She treats her father with respect and deep gratitude. But nevertheless, now her allegiance under Christ is to her husband. There is a new authority structured, formed here, that must be recognized not only by the married couple, but by their parents. And it's often not done so. The married couple must understand, you have your own home now. Men, women, Don't be dependent on your daddy. Leave him and cleave to your spouse. If you cannot make it without their financial assistance, you shouldn't be married. Leave and cleave. And also, you parents should think the same way. You know, it's hard to be parents. Here's my little child, and now she can legally sleep with this guy. Sometimes that's the extent of what we feel. We treat them as children still. And we still think of them as children. When as a matter of fact, they are a new separate family. This man is now a husband and this woman is now a wife. And they must be treated as such. The whole relationship must be looked upon, not as immature, immature children as they once were when they were dependent upon us. Because you see, this leaving and cleaving also means that there is an exchange of dependence. There is not only a primary structure, there's not only a change in authority, but there is a change in dependence. And that's particularly hard For fathers sometimes. Especially with their daughters. To know that that daughter is, now is not, and should not, be dependent on him. She is dependent on her husband. The man is no longer dependent on his father. His stand on, he must stand on his own two feet. He has his own home now, and that is the implication of the leaving and the cleaving. And I might add that the cleaving and the leaving is ultimately mutual. It's not just something that the husband does. Both the man and the woman are to do this together. And then there are divinely ordained roles of husbands and wives in marriage that God differentiated at the very beginning of the human race. What was the role of the husband and wife in the Garden of Eden? The man worked at subduing the earth, tilling the ground, naming the animals with the assistance of the woman. Together they worked at the task of forming a culture, forming a civilization to the glory of God. The man does this as an obedient gardener and a namer of animals, someone who spends his efforts and his time and his energy outside the home tending the garden, naming the animals, building a Christian culture outside and beyond the home, surrounding the home where the home will be safe. And the woman in the second chapter of Genesis is not the obedient gardener and not the one who names the animal. She is the helper suitable to the man. She assists him in the home as he goes beyond the home. Of course, his responsibility is to develop a Christian home too, but as he goes outside the home to work in his culture in whatever area God calls him, to keep the garden of his life clean and green, she is to be a helper suitable for him. Now, I'd have you noticed a couple of things here? First of all, she is a helper suitable for him. That God has created a woman for the man and not man for the woman, says God's word, and she is suitable to Him. That is, in God's providence, she is a complement to Him. She is exactly what He needs, and that is why men who are single must constantly pray that God would lead you to the woman that is suitable to you that you won't jump the gun, that you won't be in a hurry, that you won't be blinded by looks and by sensuality, but you would want and trust and pray for the woman that is suitable to you. And then notice she is to be a helper. The husband is to be an obedient gardener in all of the gardens of life. And the woman is to help him do it. In the book I recommended to you men by Stuart Scott, the exemplary husband, he says, God has always intended for the wife to assist her husband in his work for God. This is a principle that our society and many in the church today do not grasp. Many wives are doing their own thing for their own fulfillment. This is not a biblical attitude. The world sees pursuing one's own fulfillment As necessary to well-being and happiness, the world sees pursuing one's own fulfillment as necessary to well-being and happiness. Sadly, even Christian husbands are encouraging their wives in this pursuit. Certainly a wife is very capable of doing her own thing, but this is not God's design for her. In the end, doing one's own thing is very empty and a fruitless pursuit.
1: Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us.